Hello, this is Rachel Bevan from Oncology News Australia, proud producers of the Oncology Journal Club. This week, we have another great episode for you in our usual format. I have to say, whilst our special episodes give us an opportunity to explore developments and data in depth, I love our standard episodes because they have so much packed into them. Today's episode is no exception, with practice changing updates across a range of tumour types and specialties. Hans Prennan gets stuck into bi-specific antibodies. Craig Underhill takes us through ASCO's report on progress against cancer. And Eva Segaloff discusses Checkmate 577, a practice-changing clinical trial exploring the role of adjuvant therapy in esophageal cancer. Regular listeners will know that some of the best laughs come from our Quick Bites section. This week, you are in for a treat as the team have a great selection of papers covering everything from the use of fans through to loss of fingerprints. I hope you enjoy today's entertaining and informative episode. As ever... Links to all of the papers discussed today are available in the notes on our website, oncologynews.com.au. And if you'd like to be notified when new podcast episodes are released, to receive a free update every week covering all the latest breaking oncology news and a few quirky articles too, then why not sign up to our weekly publication, The Oncology Newsletter. It's free and it's a great way to support the OJC. This is Rachel Bavin, and this is the Oncology Podcast. Good day, good day, good day. Welcome to our podcast. Good day, good day, good day. I'll <laughs> never, he'll never replace me. It's episode 31 of the Oncology Journal Club podcast. Here with me are my wonderful colleagues, Craig Underhill. Hi, Eva. And Hans, who's trying to take my position as the opening greeter. So what do you think of my Australian accent? Pretty good, Hans. Better than our Belgian accent. Not so good at Flemish. Rightio, so action-packed today. But look, it's it's been a pretty intense week, hasn't it? Lots of bad COVID stuff your way, Hans. Yeah, indeed. It's this it's from one wave to another one. We just hope that yeah, the vaccination will change everything soon, we hope. Yeah. The death of Jose Bazelga, that hit the oncology community really hard. Rapid, unexpected, one of the absolute giants. I think everyone in oncology knew him. Craig? Yeah, I just remember listening to him present at ASCO a few times and thinking he was a great presenter and obviously involved with some really practice-changing papers. And uh, I'm always impressed when people are presenting in a second language and stuff like that as well. Clearly, the reaction on social media from his colleagues was quite amazing. So very sad for for his family and colleagues, people who knew him well. Mm. I think he de- it said he developed more than 11 drugs that have come into standard clinical practice or was involved in their development. So that's a pretty wow. big impact. All right, on a happier note, well, maybe happier, maybe angrier, Craig, you're a bit disappointed with our best mate at Glaukenfecken and his on- when the medical student went to the oncologist. Yeah, it was a bit of an anticlimax. We were all anticipating finally he was going to hang out with the oncologist and it was a bit of a 
touchy-feely on just lighting a candle, like who does that? Hopefully he'll have a – he might do a take two because it was, it was quite controversial. But great Twitter account to follow. It was our Twitter account of the week a couple of episodes ago. And if people haven't checked it out, please do. And there's a whole lot of spin-offs. Did you see Zachary Rubin doing a telemed consult with Bill, the resident on Glaucom Fecken? Hilarious. No. So at Zachary Rubin or follow Glaucom Fecken and you'll come to it. So my question for you, Hans, is is his name Glaucom Fecken? It's actually Glaucom because German is Glaucom. It's Glaucom Fecken. Is that his name? No, I think he just chose this name because it's in the field of ophthalmology, I guess. So it is actually a syndrome. Do you know what a glaucom fecken is? <laughs> but was it fecken or flecken? Because flecken, oh. yeah, like touches, I think. So I think it's flecken. So glaucom, you know, and then flecken is, yeah, some patches within uh, the glaucom. I think it's that. Yeah, you got it right. Maybe, maybe we should interview him to ask where his name comes from. I did. I direct messaged him and he didn't reply. No, his real name's like Tom Smith or something. Glaucom Flecken is his Twitter name. Anyway, check out at Zachary Rubin, telemedicine to build the poor old resident on Glaucom Flecken. Hilarious. All right, let's move on to our papers of the week. And Craig, you like these big, hard-hitting papers that tell us all about major advances. So what have you got for us? Yeah, I picked just our 7th of April, Clinical Cancer Advances 2021, ASCO's report on progress against cancer. I always like this annual review from ASCO. I think for if you're a general oncologist or a trainee, these are quite important summaries of the advances in the field. And also, you know, if you're super subspecialist just in rectal cancer, you can still learn a lot about what's going on across oncology. It was an interesting paper. They talked firstly about achieving equity in cancer research and that although cancer mortality has decreased in the US, thanks to progress in cancer prevention, early detection and treatment, but there's certain populations being left behind. So the African-American population, those living in rural areas, those with lower income and education levels who continue to have lower survival, higher mortality rates from cancer. So really urging people to advocate not to leave those groups behind. Paper talks about the advance of the year, molecular profiling drives progress in GI cancers. So that's something dear to your heart, hands and Eva being GI-focused oncologists. So that's they chose that as one of the major advances. And then talked about a few more. So this is my turn to quiz you guys. So get your buzzers ready. You can tell me, give me an example of these major advances. So the first one is progress in bringing targeted therapies to patients with earlier stage disease. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Progress in bringing targeted therapies to patients with earlier stage disease. Give us an example. I think targeted therapy is a broad phenomenon. So actually, immune therapy is also targeted therapy. So I think that Eva will discuss in this podcast a very interesting targeted therapy in the adjuvant setting of esophageal cancer. And I think this is a nice example. 
Oh, uh, yeah, good. That's possibly one. And I was thinking Adura, of course. It's been our most controversial targeted therapy trial in earlier stage disease. Eva, you're on mute. We should enjoy the silence, but seeing we actually want your interaction, let's come off mute. So the next area. Hang on, hang on. I was going to say CDK46. Yeah, very good. Adjuvant breast, although the data is controversial. Yeah, very go good. ahead. But that's not GI because he asked GI. Yeah, that, oh, no, I didn't no, hear no, that. no, I didn't. Sorry. No, it wasn't GI. It was in just in earlier stage disease. Yeah, hands. So the next one, next field, you ready with your buzzers? Biomarker driven treatment approaches that offer more personalized care for lung, colorectal, and gastric cancers. Yes, is the answer. Can you think of one? Oh, HER2 positive disease. You can have MSI, IO therapy. You can have ALK, ROS. Liquid biopsy. Now, well, the examples they gave uh, in this area for this year was Keynote 177, MSI-driven colon cancer patients, and Atizobev in HCC is uh, another example, perhaps. That's not biomarker-driven, though. The next area. Combinations of different therapies that extend survival without increasing toxicity. To cut an ip. With capecitabine and trastuzumab in HER2-positive breast cancer with brain metastases. And now you get this one probably. A growing number, this is the last question, a growing number of targeted therapies that are offering extended survival for more patients with difficult-to-treat cancers. I think it's the NTRK story with entrectinib and larotrectinib. Yeah, that's a good example. The other one would be trastuzumab deruxtecan in breast and gastric with the destiny studies. So, mm. so just lastly, they talk about what the research priorities to accelerate progress should be. They talk about developing and integrating AI and deep learning in cancer research. Interesting. Identify strategies that predict response and resistance to IO. Optimize multimodality treatment for solid tumors. Increase precision medicine research. Optimize care for older adults with cancer. So I think that's an important field. Over 50% of our patients are over 70. Increase equitable access to cancer clinical trials. That's a plug for our forthcoming telehealth and teletrials podcast. Reduce adverse consequences of cancer treatment. Reduce obesity's impact on cancer incidence and outcomes. Better identify potentially malignant lesions, predict when treatment is needed. So earlier treatment of pre-malignant or early stage cancer. So interesting paper. Fantastic. Thank you, Craig. Hans, what have you got for us for your main papers? I believe it's on the topic of biospecific antibodies. Very trendy. Yes, indeed. And that's also why I chose two papers on bispecific antibodies. So the first one is actually a news article. It's called Bispecific Antibodies Poised to Deliver Wave of Cancer Therapies. It's published in Nature Biotechnology, March 2021, and written by the science journalist Cormac Sheridan. I advise you to read it. It's very short. And why is it relevant? Because now, as you know, cancer dominates actually the field of biospecific antibody development. You see many companies investing hundreds of millions, such as, for example, Amgen, Roche, Johnson Johnson, AbbVie, Meros, etc. There are many more. 
And this article gives an overview of the most important ones in development. There are actually some caveats. That's how uh, Cormac Sheridan correctly writes. So, you know, there is synergy from one molecule simultaneously engaging a tumor-associated antigen. And then you have a receptor involved in T-cell activation. But, of course, there are often also additional toxicities, such as, for example, the cytokine release syndrome. But safety is not the only hurdle. There were some in development, and they failed to show superiority in comparison with classical monoclonal antibodies. So in general, it seems to work much better in hematological malignancies, as in the heme space, you have much cleaner targets than in the solid tumor space. And actually, this is the same for CAR-Ts. That's why CAR-Ts are quite active in hematology and still a long way to go in solid tumors. So for bispecifics tackling solid tumors, the progress have been much slower than for hematological malignancies because of a lack of unique tumor-associated antigens. So what is the major advantage now? There are more and more platforms for drug development in this field. So I think it will be a very promising approach in the coming years. And this brings me to a second paper that I selected. It's actually a research highlight published in Nature Review's Drug Discovery, also March 2021. And this one is called Bispecific Antibodies Catch Cancer Neoantigens. So as you know, mutations in P53, in RAS, they're common drivers of tumorigenesis, but there are no good therapies yet to target these mutations. So in this research paper, they highlight two studies by researchers from the Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, US, and they report the development of bispecific antibodies that recognize peptides from mutant P53 and RAS and engage an anti-tumor T-cell response in preclinical models. I will very briefly explain what they did. So the first study, which was published in Science quite recently, focused on P53 mutations. Why P53? Because it's a very common one. And they showed that a peptide derived from P53, the so-called neoantigen, is presented at the cells via a quite common HLA subtypes. They used cancer cell lines harboring this mutation. What they then did, and I explained very short, but it's actually quite long process, but they made a bispecific antibody. So one against this P53 HLA complex and the other one for the T-cell co-receptor CD3. They tested it in vitro and in vivo in mouse models and it showed a very clear anti-tumor effect. But again, it's preclinical. The second study, which was published in Science Immunology, used a similar approach, but to target common RAS neoantigens, because RAS is also an important oncogene. And also they showed potent cell killing with their bispecific antibody. And you could say, okay, but you also have CAR-Ts, which have quite the same mechanism, but unlike CAR-Ts, which must, must be engineered from a patient-owned cells and then reinfused, biospecific antibodies offer a much less resource-intensive approach. So I think there is an advantage of this approach for biospecific antibodies, and I expect because the platforms are much better, they can test much more combinations, that the coming years this will be really booming business. 
Yeah, and of course, solid tumours are much better at hiding all their neoantigens than liquid tumours, and that's the focus of all our IO combination work and unmasking the tumour neoantigens. Yeah, but the good thing in this paper is that they show that their antibodies could detect these neoantigens, which were really at a low level present at the cells. So you don't need that many neoantigens expressed by the tumor cells to be detected by the antibody. And I think this is one of the uh, major advantages of these publications. Good papers, Hans. I love it when you say RAS. Can you say RAS to us the second time? RAS. RAS. <laughs> Well done. That was your intellectual comment. (laughs) It was. I expected a difficult question, but now it's just a pronunciation question. (laughs) Eva, what have you got for us this week? Well, I have a straightforward, standard, run-of-the-mill, practice-changing clinical trial. So checkmate 577 presented at the ESMO Plenary 2020 and covered in our post-ESMO broadcast podcast last year was published in the New England Journal first week in April, first author Ronan Kelly. So the background is that we really don't know the best neoadjuvant therapy prior to surgery for esophageal or geojunction cancers. We don't know if we should do chemotherapy alone FLOT is the standard regimen, or chemoradiation, CROSS being the standard regimen. But after a neoadjuvant chemoradiation approach, we've never had any benefit demonstrated for standard adjuvant therapy. So this is an industry-sponsored phase three randomised trial. All the patients had received neoadjuvant chemoradiation They all had residual pathological disease. You could have either an adeno or a squame, and there's ongoing debate about whether both histologies should continue to be recruited to trials in this space. And they had to have had an R0 resection. Patients were randomised 2 to 1 to nivolumab at a dose of 240 milligrams every two weeks for 16 weeks and then double the dose at a four-weekly interval up to a year of treatment or placebo. Now, very controversially, the primary endpoint was DFS. Really, we look for OS, for large adjuvant chemotherapy trials, shades of Adora. Maybe we'll play the a little uh, rap rerun from Craig, but that caused lots of controversy. Now, the results at a median follow-up of around 24 months, we had about 532 patients in the Nevo arm who achieved a median DFS of 22.4 months. The 95% confidence intervals were 16.6 to 34 months. So median 22.4 compared to 11 months. 95% CI range from 8.3 to 14.3, and that was for the 262 patients who got placebo. So that translated into a hazard ratio for disease recurrence or death at 0.69, 95%. Actually, it was reported as the 96.4 
percent confidence intervals, which I've never seen before, but they wanted to get every last 0.1%, 0. 0.56 to 0.8, highly statistically significant. The grade three or four treatment-related AEs were 13% on the Nevo arm versus six for placebo and treatment discontinuation 9% versus 3% and no overall adverse impact on quality of life for Nevo. They had a number of pre-specified subgroups and the benefit was seen in most of these. So there was a greater benefit in squames rather than adenos, although the benefit was in both. It was greater in esophageal than geojunction that may relate to the prior issue of histology. There was an approximately similar benefit for node positive, node negative, or HER2 positive and HER2 negative, or whatever the YPT stage was. Now, interestingly, they report approximately equal hazard ratio of, be- of benefit for both PDL1 positive and PDL1 negative. And in the editorial, David Ilson, who's the real, you know, internationally renowned expert from Memorial Sloan Kettering, said this was a new standard of care. However, most patients still won't benefit. We need biomarkers, CTDNA. However, Twitter exploded with a little bit more controversy, the first being should we wait for overall survival? Again, shades of Adora. Can we go with DFS alone to change standards for adjuvant therapy, particularly expensive treatments that go on for a year? And the second issue was buried in the supplement was the forest plot for PDL1 score of divided by CPS expression. And if you look at the group where the expression was less than 5%, there was no statistical difference for having the adjuvant Nevo. So there was a bit of criticism about this blanket statement that it's a new standard of care for everyone and that here we may have a biomarker and we're not using it. The practice implication is, does this then replace neoadjuvant chemotherapy with FLOT? Should everybody be having cross-neoadjuvant chemo radiation and then adjuvant Nevo. So I'm throwing over to you, Hans, what impact has this or will this likely have in your part of the world? First, I fully agree that I was also a bit surprised to see this study to be positive. Of course, you always hope that again, it was a very interesting positive study. My main issue is that, okay, you you mix again different pathologies, while we know that squamous is completely different than with adenocarcinoma. And also, there are a lot of patients that have no benefit. And then if you give a treatment which is quite costly and for a whole year, I think the the main question is that we have to find the ideal biomarker that tells us which patients would really need this treatment. But again, I'm still very positive, and I hope it will get into the clinic. But if you ask me, it's mainly for the squamous cell carcinoma patients that standardly receive cross-neoadjuvant. And in this patient group, I would be very comfortable of giving adjuvant Nevo uh, for a year. But in the junction where we give sometimes FLOT or more FLOT, I would just stick to the standard treatment. So Craig, you've been very hungry. What have you been snacking on for your quick bites? 
You'll love this one, Eva. It's, again, it's a review paper. People can delve into the detail, but it's an up-to-date review of the diagnosis and treatment of metastatic colorectal cancer published in JAMA. The second one is another guideline, management of dyspnea in advanced cancer. I was interested in this because recently I had a patient who was hypoxic and dyspneic, and I asked the palliative care service to organise oxygen, and they gave him a fan. And I'm going, what the hell, right? <laughs> so I was attracted to this. How is it going to help? So I was attracted. It's cheaper. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what they said. So I was attracted to look into the evidence of about this, and so it talks about strategies to manage dyspnea. It's a comprehensive review. Uh, David Caro in Sydney is one of the co-authors on this paper, they looked at 48 randomised clinical trials and two retrospective cohort studies for the evidence of managing dyspnea. So using a band directed at the cheek has been shown to relieve the symptoms of dyspnea, but if someone's hypoxic, they actually need oxygen to relieve their hypoxia. So both approaches are actually correct. People might feel better with a fan on their face, but if they actually have measurable hypoxia, oxygen is actually the best way to relieve dyspnea. Talks about some other non-pharmacological interventions, use of opioids, steroids, and benzodiazepines. And my third one is in the field of geriatric oncology. It's called Identifying Frailty in Clinically Fit Patients Diagnosed with Hematological Malignancies using a simple clinico-biological screening tool, the HEMA-4 study, and it's basically using simple parameters. So it's a study in 285 patients with hematological malignancies. They looked at a frailty score called the HEMA-4, which looks at four independent predictive factors for survival, cognitive impairment, comorbidities, more than two on the Charleston comorbidity index, CRP and low albumin level and stratified them into three groups, good prognosis, intermediate and poor prognosis. The poor prognosis patients actually had a median survival of four months in the development cohort, six months in a validation cohort. I guess the question is, would a poor prognosis of four months still stop hematologists from treating these poor patients? But a very simple score and this whole field of geriatric oncology, I think we'll talk about in the future in the podcast. As we mentioned earlier, it's a priority for ASCO to do research in this field and we need to really screen our patients, identify those who are appropriate to treat or not. Great. Some excellent reading there. Fantastic. Thank you, Craig. So, Eva, do you still have a short bite, so something that you read what was quite interesting this week? Yeah, thanks, Hans. I thought there was lots of interesting stuff that's been published. I particularly liked a review on hyperprogression, a systematic review and meta-analysis, hyperprogressive disease during cancer treatment with immune checkpoint inhibitors, published in JAMA Oncology, where they looked at 24 clinical trials and observational studies around 3,100 patients, and they found the incidence of HPD varied from 6 to 43%. It could be overestimated or underestimated depending how you defined it, whether you assessed it on tumour growth rate, 
tumor growth kinetics, target lesions only, or resist defined progression or the timing of the assessment. And the paper really concludes that we need to standardize this definition. My second quick bite was a paper that Craig and I uh, were involved with, and you would have been involved with this time last year when you were an honorary Australian hands doing your sabbatical. But this is the MOGA Medical Oncology Group of Australia position statement on COVID-19 vaccination for cancer patients. So there's been lots of different cancer societies putting out guidelines. This paper, which has just been accepted actually for Internal Medicine Journal, put a Australian context on it and it discusses in practical terms things like timing of vaccination with respect to anti-cancer treatment, what to do with people who've had allergies to agents like Taxane that had the same PEG or polysorbate 80 that are in some of the COVID vaccines, how we should time this with flu vaccination because winter is coming in the southern hemisphere. So a lot of the Northern Hemisphere guidelines don't have the same recommendations. And also a shout out on our OJC podcast webpage. We'll put some links to the patient information sheets produced by both Cancer Australia and Cancer Council Victoria. How's it going in Belgium vaccinating patients? Are you still up to, are there any specific moves for cancer patients? Actually, in our center, we're doing uh, two studies, two large studies in cancer patients that we specifically vaccinate. The first study was with the Pfizer vaccine, but now we started one with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And we want to detect in cancer patients receiving chemotherapy, whether they develop antibodies, how quickly, maybe if one vaccine would be better than another one, because there is still nothing known about this. So many questions we try to tackle within these studies, and I'm sure that many other centers throughout the world are doing quite the same studies. Absolutely. Now that you've finished your quick bites, do you actually have something more like an amazing article of the week? Well, funny you should ask, Hans, but I do, actually. This one I love. It was published in 2017 in JAMA Oncology, but it's entitled Cape Cytobine and the Risk of Fingerprint Loss. So fingerprints are not only used in criminal activity. Of course, we get fingerprinted when we enter the US, but even to open your phone or your device these days, you use your fingerprint. Now, we know that people with Cape Cytobine or some of the TKIs like serafinib cause hand-foot syndrome or hand-foot-skin reaction, and that's quite common. These investigators decided to see if it affects your fingerprint. Fantastic IIT. So what they actually did was they did a prospective study at Erasmus in Rotterdam. They had 150 patients, and they got 337 10 fingerprint sets, so none of them had an amputation or had lost a finger, which is quite unusual actually in Australia. Most people have a finger sawed off within a cohort of patients. Fingerprints were taken using a digital scanner before treatment at 6 to 10 weeks and then after discontinuation. And they also took digital photographs 
of their palms. And these photographs were assessed by three dactyloscopists. Hans, do you know what a dactyloscopist does? Sounds like something with writing. It's, it sounds like a colonoscopist gone wrong, doesn't it? <laughs> I think they're fingerprint experts, and plus they had a detective from the Netherlands National Police Agency. It sounds more like an SBS movie to me. They graded them on a five-point scale, and they also assessed the patient's hand-foot syndrome by CTCAE. Now, what they showed was 14% of Patients on Cape Cytobine had severe loss of their fingerprints and about 2% with sunitinib, and it was not related to the grade of the hand-foot syndrome or hand-foot skin reaction. It recovered completely within about two to four weeks after treatment was stopped. So it's not on any of our patient information sheets. Maybe it should be something that I'm Sure, if we start asking patients about, we'll find it's more common and we just never told them that they won't be able to open their phone with their fingerprint. Yeah, because actually, yeah, you speak mostly about Cape Cytobin, also Sunitib, but there are many drugs now that give hand-foot syndrome. You have also a lot of FGF receptor inhibitors. We speak about sorafenib, pregorafenib, everything in that field gives also hand-foot syndrome. So I think it's a very relevant topic, although it's from 2017. I'm quite surprised that you found that paper. Ah, wide reading, hands, wide reading. Look, it's been a great pleasure once again to do one of our regular episodes of Oncology Journal podcast, seeing what's out there in the literature, what's piquing interest, and really going through some of the interesting, amazing, practice-changing and not-so-practice-changing data. So thank you very much to everyone involved in the OJC podcast. We've got some great special editions coming up. Keep on listening. Keep on listening. We've got podcasts coming out of our ears, special topics and our regular episodes. Many thanks to our producers, Rachel and Graham. Thanks to Craig and your hands. Keep safe and well, everyone. Bye for now. Thank you, Eva. Bye. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.